the National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. It's been nearly 30 years since Yellowstone National Park's wolf recovery program began. Since then, the Keystone Predator has been re-established in the park with roughly 100 wolves in eight packs. They have impacted the ecosystem in myriad ways, from preying on elk and bison to possibly helping aspen groves re-establish across the park. Then in 2008, Interior Secretary Dirk Kempthorne launched the federal government's Bison Conservation Initiative, a program to expand bison populations on public lands. It's an ongoing initiative that not only helps preserve the species gene pool, but benefits many other flora and fauna. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at the National Parks Traveler. Wolves and bison are just two species that have benefited from restoration efforts. As society works to clean up the environment, we're seeing other successes. Most recently, humpback whales have been increasing their presence not only along the Atlantic coast, but in the waters of the New York, New Jersey metropolitan area. Now, the Biden administration's desire to preserve at least 30% of the country's lands and waters for nature by 2030 has heightened the public's interest in nature and also spurred countless conversations into not only how that goal can be achieved, but about the benefits that it will generate. Today, our guests, Professor William Ripple from Oregon State University, Michael Phillips from the Turner Endangered Species Fund, and Elaine Leslie, who was the National Park Service's Chief for Biological Resources, will discuss a proposal to expand the territories of wolves and beavers in the American West. We'll be back in a minute with that discussion. Since 1986, National Park visitors have turned to the best-selling guidebook, Passport to Your National Parks, to collect fun ink stamps from each of their explorations. Just take your passport book to any National Park Visitor Center or park store and get your free ink stamp with the date and location of your visit. Personalize your passport even more by adding stickers, logging your favorite hiking trails, and mapping your next adventure. You can also show off your love for our national parks with passport-themed apparel and accessories. Best of all, 100% of proceeds from the Passport program support your national parks. Stamp your passport as you capture stories, preserve memories, and discover America's natural and historical treasures. The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, protect wildlife, and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at yosemite.org. Full of stunning photography and thought-provoking reads, Smokey's Life is a biannual magazine produced by Great Smoky Mountains Association. Members receive it free of charge each spring and fall, and it is available for purchase in retail stores throughout Great Smoky Mountains National Park and online at smokiesinformation.org. All right, we're back with Professor Ripple, Mike Phillips, and Elaine Leslie. Welcome to The Traveler, folks. Thank you. Good to be here. Yeah, Kurt, good to be here. You know, I appreciate you taking the time to, to join us and, and try and get into the, the details of the rewilding the American West proposal that came out um, earlier this summer. Um, Professor Ripple, what, what spurred this document? Well, it was simply an idea that I had after I heard President Joe Biden uh, announced the America the Beautiful plan. This is a plan where he is suggesting we conserve and protect 30% of the U.S. land and water by 2030. So after I saw that executive order, 
I got the idea of a rewilding plan for the federal lands in the western United States. Why focus on wolves and, and beavers? Well, first of all, let me um, say something about uh, rewilding, uh, because uh, rewilding aims to reestablish vital ecological processes. And these typically involve uh, key native animals, restoring key species, and they typically involve restoring predators. Uh, the rewilding concept is more commonly known in Europe than in the United States. Uh, where they have a conservation programs that have brought back thousands of wolves and bears and lynx. And the rewilding plan that we put forward, uh, we're focusing on two keystone species, uh, gray wolves and beaver. And uh, I can talk more about uh, why those those two. Is that what you'd like, Kurt? Yeah, I'm really curious because, you know, there, there are myriad species out there and, um, you know, how did you manage to come down to just, you know, these two? Yeah, uh, let me mention a couple of things, and, and, and my co-authors can chime in. First of all, gray wolves can offer significant ecological benefits by helping control naturally overabundant prey, such as deer and elk, that browse down important plant species, such as aspen and willow. And another uh, point that I want to make about wolves is that they can provide important carrion for a variety of scavenger species. So uh, they, you know, wolves are really very much what wildness is about. And um, much of the American public is really enthused about wolves. And they have this keystone uh, effect that uh, I just mentioned. But uh, in contrast, um, and in comparison, the beaver are also considered a keystone species. Uh, by felling trees and shrubs and constructing dams, uh, beaver enrich fish habitat. They can help maintain water flows during the droughts. They improve the water quality and generally improve habitat for a lot of plant and animal species. The ponds and the wetlands uh, constructed by beaver can serve as natural fire breaks in the case of wildfire, which seems to be more and more common these days given climate change. There's a, there's a lot you could say about wolves and beaver. This is just the start. Um, Elaine and Mike, do you have anything? I'll, I'll pop in real quick. Um, yeah, I think everything Bill said is spot on. And uh, looking at rewilding and these two specific species on the landscape scale is critically important right now when we're discussing things like where we are with climate change biodiversity loss. And, and it's not just some of those iconic species that are intertwined with this rewilding efforts. Uh, we need to look at invertebrates and herpetofauna, reptiles, and avifauna. I mean, you can't go through a, a nice wild riparian system and not notice bird habitat. And the invertebrates are critical to that. And that whole intertwining of healthy waters, healthy systems, healthy ecosystems is critically important to a myriad of species. So, you know, we can look at the iconic wolf and we can look at beavers and some of these other, you know, moose and habitat, et cetera. But we need to we need to scale down sometimes and look at look at, at a microfauna level as well and the importance of the 
restoration of these species in this habitat in really bringing back biodiversity and preventing further loss. You know, it's interesting, Professor Ripple, you mentioned the um, the popularity that the wolf has in, enjoyed in, in recent uh, times. And it wasn't too long ago that both um, beavers and wolves were considered to be somewhat nauseous, noxious um animals. You know, they, they tried to wipe out the wolf. They pretty much wiped the, the beaver off the uh, American landscape through the, the trapping days of the 19th century. And and yet we've seen a resurgence certainly around Yellowstone National Park and, and Mike in Colorado with um, the ballot initiative to, to return wolves there. Um, how do you explain this re- reversal in, in in how we view these these animals? If there's been a resurgence, it's a function of any number of things coming together, not the least of which is a federal law that mandates that we as a country go forward. The federal law I'm referring to is the Endangered Species Act. Uh, it also makes a great deal of difference that gray wolves are relatively easy to work with. They're wonderful ecological generalists. Gray wolves can make a bad restoration plan look good. All they need, all they need really is access to something bigger than themselves to live on. Gray wolves are hardwired to prey on large hoofed mammals, and they need to be left alone. Uh, Kurt, the only thing that's ever given gray wolves the blues, the only thing that's ever threatened the gray wolf anywhere is human-caused mortality. Otherwise, they're really quite capable. They just need to be left alone. Notably, as Bill led the charge with this rewilding paper, which is founded on very good science, We also know from very good science about gray wolves, which is one of the most studied large mammals in the world. We know a lot about gray wolves. Uh, We we know without doubt, if you're willing to take a fair look at data, uh, you're willing to embrace reality. Coexisting with gray wolves is a relatively straightforward affair that requires a modicum of accommodation. They are not hard to live with. They do not represent a threat to human safety. That's of note. They do not represent a threat to the livestock industry, and they do not represent a threat to the big game hunting industry. What gets in the way of wolf recovery, and we've whittled away at this for decades now, is the myth of the wolf. This myth that would have you believe that gray wolves can exercise their predatory will on a whim. Nothing could be further from the truth. But unfortunately, the myth on the gray wolf is as wrong as it is strong, and it persists through present. And, and, and while we make two steps forward, we always have one step back. And we've had great success restoring gray wolves in the northern Rocky Mountains. But now in the presence of state laws, there's a concerted effort to liberalize recreational killing to affect a significant reduction in wolf numbers for no justifiable reason. So I'm wondering, you know, Professor Ripple, how do you... How do you envision this coming um, into it being? I mean, how much land do we need to open up or reopen up for, for wolves? And, and certainly beavers are already making their way across uh, various places and the National Park Service is working with them. And we'll get into that in a little bit. But what, what areas do we need to open up to these two species? So, uh, well, let me back up a little bit and describe the process we use to do the analysis for this project. So the first thing we did was we looked at where in the American West is the prime wolf habitat on federal lands. So this this would be the uh, potential wolf habitat on publicly owned, federally managed lands. And we asked the question, 
We used a geographic information system, a computer mapping system. We said, show us all of the, the tracts of land that are at least 5,000 square kilometers in size. And we mapped those out for the Western 11 states. And we found uh, 11 areas in the Western United States that, uh, that meet these two criteria. They are at least 5,000 square kilometers and they are prime wolf habitat. Now these are typically on forest service lands, but not always. And they are typically um, areas that have um, forests. And these are fairly productive areas uh, that produce prey such as deer and elk uh, that the, the wolves can use. So this is kind of the foundation of our project. And when we mapped all these areas out, uh, it just came to be that they're fairly closely connected. They're not far apart and they, they create a, what we call the Western Rewilding Network going from uh, California up and through Oregon, Washington, across Idaho, down through Montana, Utah, uh, Wyoming, and into um, finally into Arizona. So uh, we mapped these areas out and we did some uh, mapping of stream networks and there's plenty of streams for beaver in, in these areas. And we uh, also mapped uh, out threatened and endangered species. And we found uh, that in this Western Reserve Network that there are 92 threatened and endangered species. And as Elaine was talking earlier, we need to think about the small species and the invertebrates, insects, um, and we need to think about plants because the foundation of biodiversity is having a very healthy vegetation system in, in plants. And um, as we talked about earlier, both gray wolves and beaver, uh, especially in riparian areas, these are streamside areas, are uh, keystone in promoting um, biodiversity from the bottom up. Now, uh, Kurt, I think I was started rambling and I might have um, missed your, your main question. <laughs> Can you repeat that? No, no, I think you hit it. Um, I, I was just wondering if you could be, um, you know, point to some specific um, areas, national forests that, that might benefit. I mean, I'm here in Utah. Does, does the Wasatch Cache National Forest uh, east of me qualify in that uh, description of uh, someplace with 5,000 square kilometers? Yes. Um, let me... Let me look at my note here, and we have um, the Wasatch Mountains are in one of the potential reserves. Uh, we have Yellowstone, the Southern Rockies, the Southern Cascades, the Sierra Nevadas, uh, the Olympic Mountains, the Northern Rockies, Northern Cascades, the Klamath, Blue Mountains. We have 11 of these all together. That's quite a quite a cross section. Sounds pretty interesting. We're talking today about rewilding the American West with Professor William Ripple from Oregon State University, Michael Phillips from the Turner Endangered Species Fund, and Elaine Leslie, who was the National Park Service's chief for biological resources. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. 
Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Petrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with a breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com. P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. The beauty of lifelong membership with Interior Federal Credit Union is that we are here for you forever to handle any financial needs that life throws your way. Car loans, home repairs, investment accounts, trust accounts for the family. 99% of our members never visit a branch because of our 4.8 star rated mobile app. Make sure you share the gift of membership with your family. Start kids and grandkids with a Little Buffalo account at interiorfcu.org. Federally insured by NCUA. The Everglades Foundation, the only organization whose sole mission is to restore and protect America's Everglades. Learn more at evergladesfoundation.org. Okay, now I'm, I'm wondering, you know, you've identified these areas. How do you make it happen? I mean, there's obviously... Um, one side of American public that thinks wolves are just wonderful. Um, we saw that in Colorado with the vote to bring wolves back there. But around the, the greater Yellowstone area and into Idaho and certainly parts of Montana, they're despised. So I imagine there's going to be a there would have to be a pretty good public relations effort to convince the American public that in a majority that this is worthwhile. How do you do that, Mike? Well, I suspect if you put it before the American public, they would largely support the proposal of the Western Reserves Network. The problem isn't with the American public, it's with elected officials and decision makers that inevitably bring their own ideologies to the decision-making table. And, and I know that, Kurt, firsthand. I served as a legislator for 14 years in the Montana House of Representatives and Montana Senate. And try as I might to divorce myself from my own blind spots, I, I never could. You know, None of us are perfect and we all have shortcomings. It, this proposal will get hung up by elected officials not seeing the wisdom of reducing livestock grazing and removing some extractive activities in favor of native species and native species recovery. And for both the beaver and the gray wolf, the process is relatively simple. For the gray wolf, uh, at this point, there's really very few areas left where you have to actually reintroduce them. They're good enough at colonizing. If given half a chance, they'll make more than full use of any opportunity. All we have to do is not kill them needlessly. Mm -hmm. And yet gray wolves continue to be routinely killed needlessly. There will have to be some restoration work with beavers. They don't have the same colonizing abilities. But given that beaver beavers help slow and hold water, which will become increasingly important as the West becomes more and more arid, which is inevitable, everyone should celebrate the beaver's ability to help us manage water in a most prudent way. This really, Kurt, is all about tolerance and becoming ecologically aware that what we've done in the past will not serve us well going forward. That point has to be made to elected officials. I am in direct contact with some U.S. senators, for example, trying to make it aware that the rewilding reserve network that Dr. Ripple and others, myself and Leslie included, proposed fits very nicely, for example, with Recovering America's Wildlife Act a most ambitious goal to provide significant funding for states to move fish and wildlife conservation forward. Uh, it's known shorthand by RAWA, Recovering America's Wildlife Act. 
if the decision makers begin to see that the proposal Dr. Ripple led moves that piece of legislation forward, it's easy for me to imagine how the great promise of recovering America's Wildlife Act could be achieved by embracing the proposal that we have put forth with our Western Reserves Wildlands Network. You've got to make this actionable at a legislative level with significant funding. And because we directed our work to federal public lands, the federal government has a great big role to play. That's how you make this idea actionable. You connect it to federal activities already underway, like Recovering America's Wildlife Act. We chose to connect the idea to the president's Make America Beautiful plan. We could just as easily have rooted this proposal against Recovering America's Wildlife Act. In other words, we've got to connect this idea to the capacity of the federal government to move the country forward. Elaine, correct me. Um, the wolf recovery program in Yellowstone, they were designated an experimental species, right, under under the Endangered Species Act. And are they still considered an experimental species? I, um, Mike is probably better to answer this. With all the delistings and relistings that have gone on, their current status, Mike, is... Yeah, no, Kurt, in the northern Rocky Mountains, the gray wolf has been removed from the endangered species list altogether. No federal protections are applied in uh, Montana, Wyoming, Idaho, and parts of Oregon and Washington. Elsewhere in the country, the gray wolf is now, and I'm referring specifically to Canis lupus, uh, the gray wolf is, is uh, considered endangered, except for a small part of Minnesota where it's considered threatened. So it is, the, the species is protected by federal law. Yeah, I was and, just And obviously fully protected in places like Yellowstone National Park. And if they finally make their way down to Rocky Mountain National Park, um, you know, full protection when they're in a national park. Yeah, I was just wondering in places like Utah, where I don't see you managing to convince the um, congressional delegation or state leaders that wolves are a good thing to have in the Wasatch Mountains, if if the wolves made it down here as they have sporadically from time to time, would they be protected under the Endangered Species Act, Mike? Yes. Yes, Kurt, they would. Right now. <laughs> yeah, in Utah, throughout Utah, they're federally protected. It, once restoration is complete in western Colorado, and it will go forward with reintroductions beginning by December of 2023, I would have you believe that that's the last great restoration effort needed. And all of the other wolf country that we identified in our paper, in the presence of tolerance, or to put it another way, in the absence of needless killing, gray wolves will find the nooks and crannies where they can flourish. They'll find the Wasatch Mountains, for example. They don't have to be reintroduced everywhere. Right, right. And yeah, look what's happening in California, Washington, Oregon. You know, they're making their way across. One thing Mike said that was really important, and Bill and Mike have both said this, and the paper reflects on this, is these animals need the ability to move and to move safely. And, and if in this country, we have no federally designated wildlife corridors. We have Path of the Pronghorn, but that's not a federally designated corridor system. We need a federally protected corridor system. We need landscape corridors. We need stepping stone corridors. We need buffer zones, linear corridors. We need a way for these animals to move in a protected fashion. And right now, it doesn't matter if it's the predator or the prey, they don't have that ability. 
And, and that needs to be part of this discussion. And the paper brings that up, that connectivity and migration are very important here. And so as you can restore something all you want, but if you don't have the means of getting this wildlife there safely, there and back again, it's, it's really a critical component. No, that's long been a challenge. I mean, we've seen uh, the Yellowstone to Yukon proposal that dates back, I think, at least to the 90s, maybe to the 80s. I know on the East Coast, we're seeing some some progress through, uh, I believe, is the, the rewilding network um, or wild corridors. Um, mis- wildlands. Mis- wildlands. I want to go back to a central question you asked of Dr. Ripple, why wolves and, and beaver? And I, by no means, Bill, if I'm oversimplifying, please step in. Okay. But when you look at our work closely enough, there's one thing above all else that would advance rewilding beyond tolerance. And, and I don't think it's too much for folks to value life and not kill things needlessly. But beyond that, there's the one thing that this proposal needs to become alive and effective, and that's removing livestock from grazing allotments. About 29% of the grazing allotments of the Western US. That's that's the the one thing, when you look at the science, we understand livestock are a big burden on native species and native landscapes. Why does that matter to gray wolves? It has been the friction point between wolves and livestock that advanced the eradication campaign that lasted for hundreds of years in this country that took the gray wolf, a very, very common large carnivore 300 years ago, to the brink of extinction in this country. Kurt, there were gray wolves everywhere in the United States, coast to coast, east to west, north to south. And by the late 1950s, you could only find a few hundred in the far northeastern corner of Minnesota and a handful of wolves on Isle Royale National Park. That was it. The eradication campaign was nearly complete, and it was principally driven over concerns about wolves and livestock. So wolves bring a very effective uh, focus on the issue of livestock and the integrity and ecological health of Western landscapes and future prospects for native species. That's why wolves, alongside beaver, were a very useful focal species for this analysis. Now, you mentioned removing livestock from, from federal land allotments. What, what's the cost of that? That's beyond the the scope of our paper, but we did talk about uh, economics a little bit in that the the current federal livestock allotment grazing program loses money every year, a lot of money. I think think we wrote over $100,000, I mean, over $100 million a year is uh, lost by the federal government. So they spend more on the grazing program than they bring in in the nominal fees that they charge. So uh, there's also been a, uh, there've been various programs to retire grazing allotments where uh, money has been put up and and offered to the permittees uh, to uh, retire their, uh, their leases on federal land. Now, um, that said, these leases are offered by the federal government on a year-to-year basis, and there's no, um, there's no guarantees that they'll be renewed every year. So the government has the option of not renewing some. But in our paper, we realize that um, it would be fair and practical and just to 
come up with some federal money to help uh, the uh, ranchers for areas that have uh, retired uh, grazing allotments. Does that help a little bit, Kurt? Yeah, I think so. I'm just, um, you know, wondering. You did mention that um, the federal government overspends, and it might have been 129 million dollars. I couldn't exactly um, locate the the number right away. But to to retire those grazing allotments, you know, I'm just wondering what it would cost the the federal government. Whether well, you'd have to do a deep analysis on, on an allotment by allotment basis. But Kurt, here's the point. Let's assume for a moment that the, the grazing program on federal lands in the Western U.S. is upside down by $125 million every year. The American people pay $125 million more to maintain the program than the program collects. So you could spend $125 million on retirement and still be breaking even. Yeah. So, so th there's enough money if we just make different choices about how to use the public's resources in the Western U.S., this proposal we've advanced, which is really only re retiring grazing allotments across 29% of the Western US that's relevant to this discussion. Not all of it, just 29%. Uh, there's plenty of money to go around if we simply make different decisions that would advance psychological integrity and health and would advance prospects for threatened and endangered species. Yeah. And, We're talking and I would add that there is a pretty short window to do some of this. The degradation continues where these allotments are and currently how they're being managed. And so the work is going to get harder in the future. And like I said, with climate change and biodiversity loss, you know, we're, we're just adding to it in such a drastic way that it's going to be very difficult to return some of these lands that are just being beaten down. And as those allotments, maybe we can get them retired. If not, new allotments are going to come open and new allotments are going to get into a degraded state as well. So it's kind of a vicious cycle until we actually put our foot down and do something about it. We're talking today about uh, plans to rewild the American West, uh, the challenges such a plan would face, and how realistic it is to come. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the National Park System for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That is why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people, inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org.
You know, Elaine, um, the paper mentions that uh, I think there's 92 threatened and endangered species um, across these corridors that, that would be benefited, I'm, I'm imagining, directly and indirectly? Sure. And, and it's a myriad of species, like Bill said in the beginning, all the way from invertebrates to small mammals to avifauna. You know, it's, it's not to mention the wolf. And there was a time that beavers were pretty close to getting listed as well. Um, but, you know, federal managers have a responsibility when it comes to the Threatened and Endangered Species Act. It is a law. And I would say that we spend a lot of our money in national parks, fish and wildlife refuges, I'm not sure about BLM, <laughs> um, into infrastructure, right? And, and yes, that's needed so the American public can enjoy their protected lands, but we have to protect the resources there first. And we're not doing a great job of that. In fact, it's very difficult to, to work on restoration projects in say national parks takes a lot of money that we don't have because money needs to go to infrastructure because visitation is so high and, and there's a whole set of restoration associated with that. But it is our responsibility as land managers to look at what needs to be restored and make the landscape whole in our national parks and fish and wildlife refuges. And I'm not sure we're doing a good job of that. One reason is it's highly controversial and it takes a lot of money just for the planning phases of it, let alone the actual restoration. Um, I, I've been involved with condors for you know 30 years and it's you know it started out as hugely controversial and but it's a big money sink as well. But it's amazing to see a restored species out there on the landscape, still not on their own because we have to feed them because of lead impacts, et cetera. But, you know, when it comes to the wolf, you know, I just look at a place like the Southern Rockies and why don't we have species like wolves there or wolverine or some of these and get over our 1880s mindset in some folks. And it's a paradigm shift rewilding and we need to get there. Well, I think the Park Service is getting there in certain areas when it comes to, to beaver restoration. I mean, we're working on a series of stories and, you know, Rocky Mountain National Park, they're doing a lot and seeing some success there. Bandelier National Monument. Um, I think Great Basin is getting ready to experiment and uh, Mesa Verde Voyagers National Park. So it sounds like, you know, the heavy load isn't on the restoring the beavers so much as it is the wolves. Uh, Professor Ripple, I, I'm wondering, has anybody in Congress reached out to you after all the publicity around this paper to discuss it and learn more details about it? Uh, good question. Uh, I have not yet been contacted by any political leaders, uh, no one in Congress yet. But um, I want to say that the conservation organizations, uh, the U.S.-based conservation organizations, five of them Five organizations put out a joint press release supporting our rewilding plan. And in addition to that, I've been contacted by international conservation organizations that want to, or one uh, big uh, uh, international group that wants to collaborate with the uh, US-based uh, organizations. And their specialty is, uh, is conservation, conservation of uh, large areas and they're very interested. So, uh, and the uh, the press has been um, on me for two weeks. I just gave an interview with uh, NPR uh, this weekend, 
and CNN uh, late last week and Outside Magazine right before that. And there's been something like 60 uh, mass media stories. So they are taking off uh, with it. It seems to be capturing the attention of people in general. Uh, as Mike has been alluding to, maybe the, the politicians will need to follow along. Uh, they, uh, but, uh, uh, and I've, I've looked on social media, it has taken off on, on places like Twitter. So uh, I think if we can get some grassroots support for uh, some of the ideas we put forward here, um, and we have these uh, large organizations that specialize in conservation uh, to help carry the ball. Uh, I'm encouraged that we will at, at least get a good debate and conversation going. I think we, we just need to talk about this. Uh, uh, it's, the plan we put forward is fairly simple. It's not extremely expensive, uh, but it needs to be discussed a lot. So those are some initial thoughts on your your question, Kurt. Yeah, Mike, I'm wondering you had a, a closely followed or closely involved with the, the Colorado ballot initiative. Is there a roadmap that you see to to push this plan forward? Uh, there is, there is, and Bill touched on it, and it rests with lawmakers, legislators, and governors. This plan won't see the light of day because. 200 plus million Americans say, this is what we want. Uh, it's been my experience, most Americans are busy with their own lives and they defer to important decisions to elected officials. So we need to reach elected officials at the state and federal level and, and emphasize as Dr. Ripple just did, this plan is really very simple, Kurt. It doesn't call for really active restoration of the gray wolf because the gray wolf will largely take care of itself and beyond uh, the work of this paper that we're discussing today, Colorado was already moving now under state law to restore gray wolves to the western half of that great state. And once that's done, and I know the world of wolf restoration very well, there's really not uh, any other places where you need to advance the wolf's presence through reintroductions. There will have to be reintroductions of beavers, but that should be met with little controversy. You have to get lawmakers to embrace the notion of tolerance and the avoidance of needless killing. At the end of the day, if that's all we were able to bring about, it would, it would uh, foment massive changes in the health and integrity of these Western landscapes. It's not complicated if you just not kill things needlessly. And if we put beavers back and celebrate their importance as ecological engineers, the vision of the Western rewilding network would become real. And, and there's activities already underway, Kurt. I mentioned earlier, I'll mention again, Recovering America's Wildlife Act. It's moving forward with bipartisan support. Let's hope that leadership in the House and the Senate believe the idea should see the light of day through proper management on the House and Senate floors. Let's hope it gets passed. Let's hope that President Biden or whomever succeeds President Biden, even if it's his second term, sees fitting to sign such sweeping legislation into law they could easily embrace the proposal of the Western Rewilding Network as a fundamental sort of, uh, uh, action plan for bringing that piece of federal law to life, that law being Recovering America's Wildlife Act. Pretty simple stuff when you get right down to it. Sure, but to that point, ha have there been conversations with the, the Biden administration or is it too early for those? No, no, I'm in direct contact with senior officials with the Biden administration. I have friends in the United States Congress that I'm reaching out to. 
it sometimes takes a while to bake a big idea. Elaine, public land managers. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think one thing that may bother me a little bit about the 30 by 30 initiative is that there's a lot of lists going around out there right now. A lot of them are already protected landscapes and they just want to change to some other uh, federal agency um, that made further protections, which is great. But I think what I'd like to see are these, um, and we touched on it in the paper a little bit, is uh, what areas need protection that aren't getting any protection right now. And that takes collaborative conservation. And there's a lot of those pieces and parts, like I said, especially when you're talking about connectivity and corridors that people could come together on. Now, federal land managers, especially the National Park Service, I think they're getting better about working across boundaries with state and other federal and you know, local communities on, you know, beaver restoration is the perfect example of, you can't just go to Mesa Verde and look at the Mancus River and restore beavers in the park. You have to look at the entire landscape and look more on a larger landscape level and working with the community, the close by community and, and others in the state. And that's that's critical with the restoration of any species, I think, or restoring habitat. You know, the Park Service actually has the ability to use federal funds to improve habitat outside of parks, like removing uh, invasive weeds. I don't think we use that enough. Um, and it's because obviously our budgets are so minimal. But, you know, there's a lot of good models out there and, and of what this paper is trying to portray. And I suspect Mike knows Jim Stone in Montana and what he's doing out there. Those folks have come together for 20, 30 years now to look at what they're doing in a ranching community and to make sure that they have restored ecosystems and are coexisting. <laughs> this is very important. Coexisting with wolves and grizzly bears and others and and restoring that ecosystem. And I think what Mike said, the word tolerance, we're the worst species for having tolerance, for goodness sakes. I mean, we can all go back and look what happened at Yellowstone last year, a year ago, winter. I mean, what are we thinking? Like I said, sometimes I think we just go back to the mid 1800s and we call everything a varmint and be done with it. And, and it's, you know, it's 2022, it's time to rethink, maybe not necessarily our policies, like in the National Park Service, our management policies, because that opens up a whole can of worms, depending on who the administration is, but our interpretation of those policies and how we put forth management strategies based on that interpretation. I mean, you can't devise a document in 2006 and expect things by 2022, 2030, 2040 to, to have the same implications. You know, like I said, biodiversity loss and climate change and fragmentation are pretty critical pieces to how we do restoration projects throughout this land now. Yeah. Now, with, with climate change and, and what we're seeing across the country, um, Professor Ripple, this program to rewild the West would, would help in, in dealing with some of those impacts to a certain extent? I think so. Uh, you know, if we can make our, our environment more pristine and and have our uh, plant species flourishing better, 
that gives us more resilience in climate change. And there's other aspects of our plan uh, that are climate related. For example, if we uh, remove livestock, ruminant livestock, typically mostly cattle from the some of the federal allotments, that is a, um, a bonus for climate mitigation. Uh, cattle emit methane through their burping. Sure. And, they, um, and then any degradation of the landscape will, um, will shift the, uh, these landscapes from carbon sinks closer to carbon sources. So for, for sequestering and storing carbon, uh, having uh, what we need is pristine landscapes that have uh, good vegetation component. Now, let me give you an example of, um, uh, well, one example I talked about earlier was the beaver. So uh, the beaver, when they have these dams up and down these streams and have create all these wetlands and ponds, the sediment that's trapped behind those dams is really good in terms of sequestering carbon. And uh, another thing on the beaver I wanted to mention is in a lot of places where there is heavy livestock grazing, it's not appropriate to reintroduce beaver because they typically need woody species on the stream banks. And these are most commonly willow species. So in our paper, we talk about putting uh, restoring beaver second or after uh, removing uh, livestock. Uh, for example, retiring the allotment first, let the willow grow up along the stream banks. Hopefully it can um, passively um, be restored, uh, but we need that, that willow and sometimes aspen and cottonwood to be along those Western streams. Um, they cool the streams, it's really good for fish, and they, um, these plants are extremely important um, for biodiversity and for um, water, quality and quantity. So it all goes hand in hand like Elaine was describing. It's, this is a biodiversity issue. And once we get these uh, riparian areas or streamside areas uh, restored, then uh, the maintenance uh, crew would be wolves and beaver. Um, it would work out just beautifully in my view. Um, and Elaine's shaking her head. <laughs> So is, <laughs> so is Mike. <laughs> is there a next step, Professor? I mean, you, you're garnering lots of media attention um, in, in all forms of media. When that dies away, you know, do you move on to another project, another research paper, or is there a way to keep this moving forward? Yes, we're, we want to keep it moving forward. And I've talked to Mike briefly about this. Uh, one idea that um, I'm working with now is to try to um, initiate uh, the start of a documentary film on rewilding the American West. So uh, my idea for the film would be to um, have the film crew travel throughout the uh, Western Wewilding Network, visit a number of, of the states or all of them, and, uh, and capture the beauty of the West and capture the drama um, of the skies and the waters and the forest and the animals. So that would be the backdrop. And then we would need to have um, a narrative or, or a storyline for uh, someone um, to be traveling with the film crew to make it an interesting uh, story. 
but uh, I'm sure something uh, like this could capture the public's attention if we could if we can uh, move forward on the the documentary film. And we uh, I don't have any specific plans right now uh, for more research, but I am starting to look at water shortages in the West and what are these cities gonna do without uh, drinking water? Uh, and uh, just look at the Colorado River Basin uh, is running dry. And uh, our proposal is very much um, consistent with conserving water as Elaine mentioned uh, earlier. So, uh, and then I, I'm thinking that um, this is, a lot of this is beyond me. I'm just, a, just one scientist working as a professor in Oregon. Uh, so people like Mike Phillips uh, and Elaine Leslie and all the other co-authors uh, promoting the paper and uh, and seeing what the, the mass media wants to do with it. Uh, I just need to uh, to sit back and, and take a breath and then continue. Well, it's certainly an exciting proposition, and uh, hopefully it will continue to gain traction down the road, and, and you'll have some success in uh, getting to through to those lawmakers and as um, Mike says, uh, preach a little tolerance out there in the, the wildlands. I'd like to thank you guys for joining us today and explaining what the paper's all about. And um, hopefully down the road, not too far, we'll be able to revisit and talk about some of the successes you're seeing. Great. Thank, thank you. you. It was nice being here with all of you. Yes, Kurt, thank you. Very good. Thanks, Kurt. That's our show for this week. I hope you enjoyed it. Next week, we'll be traveling to Alaska, virtually that is, to look at Glacial Retreat and Glacial Advance at Kenai Fjords National Park. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Rappenjack. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Park's Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit nationalparkstraveler.org.